take your Bible with me and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52 is where we'll begin. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there are still a few on the back table back there. Feel free to, to grab one uh, and, uh, and have these words that I'm about to read in front of you. We've been in the book of Isaiah for Advent, uh, and we want to now skip ahead. Last week we were in uh, Isaiah chapter 11. We want to skip ahead quite a ways to Isaiah 52. We begin in verse 13, and we'll read through chapter 53, verse 12. This is a, a, a passage that many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with. You'll recognize much of what's contained here. Isaiah 52, 13 through 53, 12. Let me read this for us. Isaiah, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and out like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for 
the transgressors. Again, this is a passage that I'm sure that you've heard before that's very familiar. It's one that, that we oftentimes even sing at, at uh, Christmas time. Many of these things I won't sing for you. I may play tram- tambourine, but I'm not going to sing for you. But many of these texts are, are found in popular works like Handel's Messiah. But what's incredible about this, I think, this passage this morning is that what it takes for us is it takes a, a common phrase that crops up in our, in our lingo, a common phrase that happens to be on our lips and maybe even was this morning. We say the words, yes, but, very often. And what I mean by that is we say, yes, but, in the face of accusation, in the face of blame or in the face of guilt, we say the words, yes, but, and then we make an excuse. Our society is always telling us to shift the blame off of ourselves and onto someone else. It's always encouraging us to justify ourselves. But what's incredible is when, you, when someone brings an accusation to you and says, dear, you don't listen very well, and you say, yes, but you don't know what happened during my day today. You don't know the things that I've had to endure at work You don't know the way that the children acted today. Yes, but shifting the blame off of yourself and onto someone else in that moment. The beauty of this passage this morning, what I hope to get to in our time together, is that this passage changes those words, yes, but, to yes, and. Yes, and. I have gone astray like a sheep. I have turned to my own way, but the Lord has laid the iniquity of me on Jesus Christ, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. And so our yes, but becomes yes, and in so far as we now can say yes, and it's far worse than you even can imagine. It's far worse, and the good news is that God sent Jesus Christ to change our yes, but to yes, and. We readily and willingly Uh, self-justify. We ask the question, what ails us? What's the thing that's most frustrating for us? Or the thing that we continue to slip back into as followers of Jesus? Whatever it is, our culture again tells us that it's probably not your problem. It's probably not your problem. It's probably due to the toxic people in your community or the right way that your, your parents raised you or didn't raise you or your wife or your husband's personality flaws. And these things, again, prevent us from being what we want to be or think what we can be. And this is a hallmark of our society, a hallmark of secular humanism is what we would call it. Secular humanism says that, others, that, it's, uh, that it's other people and situations that stand in our way of being fulfilled. Secular humanism is the idea that we can be moral and upright and achieve full, full fulfillment without belief in God. And we, because our society is constantly pressing us with those ideas, fall into that mindset, even as those who are followers of Jesus Christ. We, we fall into that mindset very quickly. The culture says, find other peoples and situations. By finding out what ails you, you can begin to shed those people. You can begin to shed those traumas and etc. in order to be more self-fulfilled. But Isaiah answers the question 
what stands in our way of being fulfilled very differently. But before we explore that idea, let's make it more personal. Do you feel, or did you, feel guilty over the way that you acted this week in any setting, in any place? Did you snap at your kids or snap at your spouse or harbor bitterness against another person? Did your eyes linger on a person who wasn't your spouse? Did you covet what your neighbor has? Did you condescend on someone and belittle them and make them feel stupid? Did you ignore the hurt of another person when you were around and could offer them a helping hand? If that was the case, did you feel the twinge of guilt? And then, and then what? And then what happens? What comes next? Our tendency in those moments is to shift the blame off of us. Sometimes to say, justify our behavior. Again, snap at the kids. I had a long day at work. Snap at your spouse. You don't understand what I'm dealing with. You harbor bitterness. Well, their personality rubs me the wrong way. You belittle someone. They're not thinking clearly. So what can stand in our way of being fulfilled? And Isaiah's answer to that question here, it stings. It stings. Because the thing that stands in the way of us being fulfilled is ourselves. It's not our kids or our parents. It's not our community or culture. It's not our situations and circumstances. It's ourselves. Why? Because we're sinners by nature, sinners by choice. Our default position is sin. And when we act out of our sin, we feel guilty because we are guilty. The world tells us that we can just shift the blame onto another person or situation, but we can't. Because ultimately, those things have no ability or power to take away our guilt. And in fact, we just create further chaos in our society. But this text gives us incredible news. This text gives us incredible news. God is going to provide a way for the guilt to be shifted off of us. Not by our attempts to push it off on parents or life situations. God is going to take our guilt and put it on to Jesus Christ. Sin is an objective violation of God's moral standards. Not, not just guilty feelings. Guilty feelings are the smoke. And wherever there's smoke, there's fire. And the fire that is consuming us and ultimately condemning us is sin. God douses that fire. And it'll gently blow away the smoke. It all comes at a huge cost. And we learn about the cost in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 13, through the end of chapter 53. How can the promises of God be a reality for people covered in guilt? How can God fulfill His purposes through people who deserve nothing more than His wrath? Ultimately, how can God love us, those who are unlovable? And so Isaiah introduces us to the answer to all of those questions and more. He introduces us to God's servant in 52.13. Behold my servant. So we'll see several things unpacked for us as we think about this servant. 
the one who is introduced to us, who can answer all of these questions for us, the subject of this section of text, that's Jesus Christ. So again, several things unpacked for us in our text this morning. We'll walk through them together. The first thing is the appearance and the affliction of the servant. The second thing is the significance of the servant. And the final thing is the accomplishment of the servant. He is the subject, and we learn about him here. So we'll bite off each of these in order. The first, we see it in Isaiah chapter 52, verses, excuse me, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3, and then again in 7 through 9. This is the appearance and the affliction of the servant. This Jesus, Isaiah tells us, didn't appear to be anything special. He didn't appear to his peers to be anything special. He was just a man from Nazareth. And when he's introduced as such in the Gospel of John, the response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? He had parents, Joseph and Mary. He had siblings. He had a profession. And so we ask, what's so special about Jesus? There's nothing majestic, Isaiah tells us. There's nothing really even all that desirable. And by saying this, in verses 1 through 3 in chapter 53, Isaiah points out how superficial we are. How superficial we are as people. Again, Jesus judged by his peers and by us in the same way that we judge a book by its cover. We're told all the time and we tell our kids not to do that. And yet, that's what Isaiah says that we do. We often desire and our good opinion is often contingent on outward appearance but we know that God looks within. And this superficiality that we are prone to led us to, Isaiah says, despising Jesus. Verse 3 of chapter 53, He was despised and rejected of men by men. We rejected Jesus. We did not esteem Jesus. And we even looked the other direction when we saw Jesus. Maybe you've wondered what Jesus looked like. I have. We have a lot of paintings, but they're all blonde hair, blue eye, and that's not the way that he looked. But the Bible doesn't really give us a physical description, so I guess we can't be sure for sure. But the Bible is clear about several things, that Jesus is reigning at the Father's right hand at this very moment. And he has a physical form, just as he was when he ascended. He's the truest expression of humanity. He's not some disembodied, floating, ethereal being. He's a man, and he looks like a man. And so if we were to speculate, he's probably average height for a first century Jewish man, 5'3", five, 5'4", five, somewhere in that range. And he probably was of average weight. If we observed him closely, his hands would be calloused from lots of years of manual labor. And he would have some very distinctive scars on him, on his hands, his wrists, his feet. Most likely had a beard. And Isaiah says it's nothing spectacular. Nothing about his appearance would draw us to him. And even then, on top of this, Jesus was afflicted. And he suffered greatly physically. When people suffer, we have lots of thoughts, and maybe we pity them or empathize with them. 
or sometimes we suggest that they deserve it. Suffering is a strike against your appearance, though. <laughs> Suffering is a strike against our appearance, whether we, want to, whether we want to admit it or not. We value those who appear affluent and live lives of perceived comfort. And we despise those who post up at the four-way stop next to Walmart begging for money. We don't want others to see our suffering because they will inevitably think less of us. We do not want others to see our suffering because we think that they will inevitably think less of us. And this is reinforced by our whitewashing of the events of Christmas. <laughs> we do this all the time. Jesus, born in a barn, slept in the place where animals ate. Not sanitary, not safe. Smelled terrible, cold, dark, miserable. Find a nativity scene that displays what actually went on that night. It's doubtful you will, because we don't like it, because we're superficial. We'd rather see halos and white robes than tears and screams and bloody afterbirth. And when Jesus' time came to take away the sin of the world, he would be beaten beyond recognition. And he would not open his mouth to defend himself. And so we emotionally tune out the divine remedy to our spiritual leprosy. We'd rather gaze at precious moments, figurines, and the mantle than observe the disfigured face of a Savior of the world, the suffering that was rightfully ours. And make no mistake, Isaiah tells us to make no mistake, this affliction was not his. It was yours. It was mine. He did no violence, Isaiah writes. He did not lie. The suffering, it was rightfully yours and it was rightfully mine. So we ask the question, how does Jesus accomplish the removal of sin and guilt? And the answer that we discover here in these verses, verses 1 through 3 and 53, and again in 7 through 9, is by suffering. How does Jesus accomplish the removal of our sin and guilt? By suffering. Guilt was paid for. We are guilty of sinning against God, objectively sinning against God, and we have violated God's objective standard and therefore stand guilty as charged. When you blame someone else for the guilt that you feel or the sin that you commit, you are looking for a solution. You are saying, someone please take this away from me. I can't bear it. This sin and the guilt that plagues me. But your wife or your husband or your kids or parents or coworkers or community or life situation, life circumstances, the government, your fellow church members, they can't bear the weight of your guilt. But there's one who can and one who did. And that brings us to the next section of text. Look right in the middle of our text this morning, verses 4 through 6 in chapter 53. The significance of the servant. Consider the significance of the servant. Jesus accomplishes all that he set out to accomplish through the affliction that he suffered. But the significance of this reality is that he did it in our place. He did it as our substitute. He is our substitute. 
He stands in and suffers for us on our account. So we ask the question, how does Jesus accomplish the removal of our sin and guilt? By suffering. But there's another part of that sentence that we need to discover. How does Jesus accomplish the removal of our sin and guilt? By suffering as our substitute. Verses 4-6 through six again shows the state that we're in because of our sin and guilt. Grieving, sorrowful, stricken by God, smitten by God, afflicted, pierced, crushed, chastised, wounded. All of this is rightfully ours. But Jesus is our sin bearer. He suffers in our place. When we were caught in our sin, so deeply entangled in our sin, there was no getting out of it. There was no just climbing out of it. And because of our sin, the wrath of God was set against us. And Jesus steps in and takes all of our sin upon Himself and suffers as our substitute. Leviticus Leviticus 16 introduces the idea of a term that you've no doubt heard, the term scapegoat. You've heard that term. On the Day of Atonement, on the Day of Atonement, Aaron... Moses' brother and the chief priest took two goats. One goat sacrificed as a sin offering, and the other goat is presented alive. After the first goat is sacrificed, Leviticus 16, 20-22 tells us, And we has made an end of atoning for the holy place in the tent of meeting and the altar. He shall present the live goat. And Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the goat, and confess over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins. And he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who is in readiness. The goat shall bear all of the iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. And this idea has become a common one. And it's almost what we're talking about when we're saying justifying oneself or shifting the blame off of us. A scapegoat has become a person who is blamed for the wrongdoings or the mistakes or the faults of others. And so when we shift our guilt and our blame from ourselves to another, we make them a scapegoat. But another person, again, who has violated God's objective moral standard cannot bear the weight of our guilt. And so what's incredible about this idea is that Jesus is both. He is both the offering for our sin and He is the one who takes our sin far from us. But this leads us then to ask the question, what did this all accomplish? Why is this the will of God? What did this all accomplish? We see it at the beginning of chapter, or at the beginning of our text in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15, and then at the very end of our text in 53, 10 through 12. The purpose of Jesus entering the world, the, 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 the event that we celebrate at Christmas, is to initiate the redemptive stage in redemptive history. If you remember, the redemptive history has these four movements, right? Creation, we see this in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, where God creates 
everyone and everything. And then in chapter 3 of Genesis, we see the fall. And then from there all the way into the New Testament, we see the fall and the devastating effects that it has on humanity and on God's people. And then Jesus breaks in and he initiates redemption in redemptive history. This is how God brings his people back to himself. And one day, ultimately, will restore everything to the way that God intended it. That's the final act. So Isaiah, in our text, a few centuries before the first Christmas, writes these words. But Isaiah begins by pointing us to the reality that Jesus' purpose in coming to earth, although it would contain suffering on our account, would be marked by success and a full accomplishment of what he set out to do. We often view suffering as failure. But look at verse 13. The second half in chapter 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then verse 11 of chapter 53. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. Many will be made righteous through the servant's actions, and he will be victorious. And Isaiah tells us that we shouldn't feel bad about what is about to happen or be described. And if we're looking at the suffering that Isaiah describes that Jesus will encounter, we should not feel pity or feel bad. Rather, we should worship the servant. We should worship Jesus Christ. He would be crushed on our account. He would bear our grief. He would carry our sorrows. He would be oppressed and afflicted. He would be wrongfully accused. But we shouldn't pity him. We should worship him. And that won't be easy to get our heads around because of what Isaiah writes in 52, 14 through 15. An appearance marred. Not even recognizable as human. But despite what is seen, his actions result in the Sprinkling of nations in verse 15. Isaiah writes, So he shall sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they will see, and that which they have not heard they understand. His actions resulting in the sprinkling of nations. And when Isaiah writes this, the mind is meant to go back to, again, Leviticus 16, but before that, Leviticus 14. When a leper was healed... When a leper was healed, an Israelite priest would sprinkle the blood of a bird on the healed individual, and that marked acceptance back into the community of faith. Or in Leviticus 16, that same, that same chapter where we see the, our understanding of scapegoat. Earlier in that chapter, the priest would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. This would make Israel acceptable for the presence of God. So Jesus is both our priest and our sacrifice. And the sufficiency of His sacrifice is so sufficient that it overflows. So He shall sprinkle many nations. It's not just for Israel, but for many nations. Jesus, our great high priest, sprinkles us with His blood in order to declare us clean of our objective moral failure. The disease that plagues us and heaps guilt upon us, Jesus cleanses us. 
So the accomplishment of the servant is this. The accomplishment of the servant is this, that Jesus came to remove our sin and our guilt and does so successfully and therefore is to be praised. He removes our sin and guilt and does so successfully and is therefore to be praised. Often our problem in Christian culture is that instead of allowing Jesus to sprinkle us clean, we just sprinkle some Jesus in here and there and call it good. We may pray quickly before a meal. We may listen to Christian radio. We may find some Christian self-help books and read them. But friends, we need to be sprinkled clean with the blood of Jesus and therefore declared clean of our moral leprosy. Without this understanding, we'll just go about passing the blame, self-justifying like the secular humanist trying to make ourselves clean. Because we have yet to see our objective moral failure is the cause of our guilt and that Jesus stands as the only one who can carry both away both sin and guilt. Ray Ortland says it like this, the mission of the church is not to offer the world a Christianized version of their own false self- salvation, but to communicate a good news they've never seen or heard before. If people do not sense the gospel is saying something unheard of in the usual remedies for human misery, are we speaking clearly? Friends, this one, you may be close to it, and you may be familiar with this text, but this is the most offensive thing that we can offer the world. This is the most offensive thing. God taken on flesh, beaten on our account, who died in our place. We've got to get our heads around that. We've got to begin to believe it beyond just a Jesus, meek and mild understanding. The story of Jesus is what He accomplished. And what He accomplished is an all-consuming narrative. Friends, don't make this a subplot to your own story. It is not a subplot to your story but it is the sum and the substance of all that happens in the world in which we live. If you hear this morning and you walk out those doors and you do your own thing for the rest of this week in preparation for Christmas, you've missed the point of Isaiah 52.13-53.12. through 53, 12. The point is that this is the one who came and accomplished everything that you needed in order that you might spend eternity in the presence of your Creator. In conclusion, then, this morning, as we look at this text this morning, just this, this thought, this is the picture of perfect love. Guilty sinners, in complete violation of God's moral objective standard, you and me, welcome back into God's family through suffering and sacrifice of a substitute. Paul says it like this in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 5, verse 8, he says it like this, but God shows His Love for us in that, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul doesn't write, but God shows his love for us in that when we got our act together, Christ died for us. And he doesn't write, but God showed his love for us in that when we were able to shift the blame successfully off of ourselves, Christ died for us. He writes, but God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The picture, the perfect picture of love is God 
sending a substitutionary sacrifice. God sending His Son to earth to endure all that we deserve. This is what we celebrate at Christmas. This is the coming of Jesus Christ. The one who would take our sin away. The one who comes to make all things right, like the shalom that we talked about last week. The one who comes to remove our sin and guilt, like Isaiah writes to us here. And the one who suffers in our place. John writes in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the atonement for our sins. The result of all of this is now that we're free. The result of all of this is that when we violate God's objective moral standard, when we sin, we no longer have to self-justify our yes, but you don't know what my day looked like. Yes, but you don't know how the kids acted today. The yes, but you don't understand how my past plays into this. It all becomes yes and. Jesus has taken my sin far from me. Jesus is our justification, so we no longer have to self-justify. We don't have to shift the blame because the blame went to Jesus. We don't have to seek self-fulfillment because Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God set out to do. And so we're free then to admit our fault and glorify God by pointing to His grace that comes to us in Jesus and covers all our sin. And we're free to apologize when, when we make a mistake or sin against our brothers and sisters, our children, our spouse, and to forgive when another person wrongs us. We're free to do these things because of the miraculous inbreaking of Jesus Christ into our world. No longer do we need to tirelessly look around for solutions to assuage our guilt. No longer do we need to shift blame and provide self-justification for our ungodly actions. We're engaged in this ongoing game of musical chairs, hoping to successfully run around in a circle and hoping not to have the blame for our sin actually fall on us as the chairs are pulled out and the music stops. But Jesus broke in and took away all the sin, all of the guilt, and offers everyone a seat at the table. You may be here this morning and you may be riddled with guilt. You may be riddled with shame. You may have sought satisfaction this week in, in worldly things. You may have lashed out at your loved ones. You may have treated a coworker poorly. You may have openly dishonored your parents. You may have read negative intent in the actions of your spouse. You may have lusted after someone who you aren't married to. You may have spent time surfing the internet for pornography. You may have drank to the point of drunkenness at a holiday party. You may have ate to the point of gluttony at that same holiday party. You may have wrongfully accused a friend of yourself. You may have called self-glorifying attention to your own charitable giving. You may have failed to defend a friend when he or she was wrongfully accused. You may have withheld generosity from someone in his need because of your personal biases. You may have soaked yourself in anger and grew bitter because of your life situation. You have violated God's moral standard, but Jesus has stepped in. 
And the punishment that you deserved has gone to him. He is your substitute. Despite our turning away, despite our going astray, God has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. God sees your attempts to justify yourself. He sees your attempts to shift blame. But he doesn't respond in the way that we might think. He pours out heaven on us. He sends one who will stand in our place. He demonstrates his love for us. If you're here this morning and and you're an unbeliever, if you're like, yeah, whatever, admit this morning that you can't get yourself out of the situation you're in. You cannot find someone to take the blame. You need to admit that there is nothing you can do and that shifting the blame is only going to bring it right back to you later. You need to admit that your sin has created a separation between you and your God. You need to admit that your only hope is Jesus Christ. And if you are a Christian, God sees all of you. God sees every inch of you this morning. There's nothing hidden from you. Don't kid yourself. All that you are, all that you've done, it's not, it's not hidden from him. Stop pretending. Stop playing the game. Stop trying to make yourself look good. Stop trying to hold it all together. Stop trying to just tough it out. The Bible calls your attempts to make yourself righteous. Rubbage, garbage. Makes your attempts. It calls your attempts to make yourself look good. Dung. It calls it crap. Your attempts to generate your own righteousness are completely useless. Your attempts to self-justify need to stop. This text tells us that we can all stop pretending now. Run to Jesus. Stop pretending. Just because you're here this morning does not score you any points with God. Empty your hands this morning of whatever it is and gaze at the Savior of the world come to earth in a simple, strange, and unremarkable setting. Consider the cross that He was destined for. Consider your guilt and your sin that would go to Him there as He hung there beaten with the blows that were rightfully yours pierced with the nails that were rightfully yours, crushed by the wrath that was rightfully yours. It is my prayer that we would take this Christmas season to stop shifting the blame off of ourselves and start savoring Jesus Christ, the one who came to take it from us, the suffering servant, through whom God demonstrates his love to us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray.